welcome to this episode of the Jambase Podcast. I'm Andy Kahn, and our season three focus on festivals continues with a special episode revisiting the Summer Jam at Watkins Glen, a rock festival that began 50 years ago today and featured performances by the Allman Brothers Band, Grateful Dead, and the band. Joining me now is Scott Bernstein. How's it going, Scotty? Could it be better? What a wonderful occasion to tell the story of an event that for decades held the Guinness Book of World Records entry for largest audience at a pop festival. Wow. I can only imagine the crowd needed to set that record. So how many people attended the Summer Jam? It's estimated that 600,000 music fans made the trip to Watkins Glen Grand Prix Raceway for what was originally billed as a one-day concert, but turned into two days of music. That's wild. So who did you speak to about the Summer Jam at Watkins Glen? The guy that literally wrote the book. Uh, Okay, three chapters of a book on the event, Alan Paul. Alan's latest book, Brothers and Sisters, The Allman Brothers Band, and the inside story of the album that defined the 70s is out now on St. Martin's Press. Okay, let's get right down to it by listening to Alan Paul discuss his book and then dive deep into the tale of the summer jam at Watkins Glen. We'll lead into the chat by listening to a bit of the Bertha that started the Dead's performance on July 28, 1973. And we'll be back to help guide you through the rest of the episode. Author Alan Paul. How are you doing today, Alan? I'm great, Scott. Thank you. What a good day to sit down and talk about this. Exactly. It's just so perfect. And this isn't your first book on the Almond Brothers Band. Can you tell us about your first book? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the first one is One Way Out, uh, the inside story of the Almond Brothers Band. And um, yeah, that came out in 2014. And I really thought I had said my piece on the Almond Brothers and I had no intention of dipping back in. But a few few years ago, I was actually talking to my friend Brad Talinsky, who was my longtime editor at Guitar World. And he's written some great books on Jimmy Page and Eddie Van Halen and the history of the electric guitar. And we were talking about what I was going to do next, what each of us was going to do next. And I said, well, I think I'm sort of done with the Allman Brothers. And he was like, you're crazy, man. Don't be done with the Allman Brothers. You're, you're, the, you're the man. You've got all this knowledge. And People care about it and you, you know, you're crazy. Don't do that. And, and Brothers and Sisters is really unexplored. And um, we talked about it for, for about an hour and his vision ended up being quite a bit different than where I ended up. But the concept 100 percent came from him. So thank you, Brad. 
Um, because you know, it's true that during this period when everyone thought the Allman Brothers were going to die, it was, uh, you know, in, in the sort of sad aftermath of Dwayne Allman's death and then Barry Oakley's death, they end up emerging. They're by far most popular and most culturally relevant. And Watkins Glen is part of that cultural relevance. <laughs> That's when they, you know, in com com combination with the band and the Grateful Dead and, and really the Grateful Dead, the band was... Oddly enough, almost an afterthought, I think, to most people going. And I sure. say that with all due respect to one of my very favorite musical acts. But I think that's just the facts. It was really the Allman Brothers Band and the Grateful Dead uh, that were drawing these people. The, the fact that they did draw, as you said, 600,000 people to, uh, no offense, Finger Lakes region. Beautiful, beautiful area, <laughs> but it's pretty remote. Yes. This is not a suburban New York or over Boston or Los Angeles or Chicago. Not at all. <laughs> It's it's quite a, it's quite amazing and uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the book so I'm I'm really happy to talk to you about it. Well, how did you getting back to the book in in general? Once you had this concept from Brad, where did you go from there? Tell me about the process. Well, my my very earliest ideas and and, and some of that was from my conversation with Brad was how influential the album was musically. Um, including in Nashville. And, and I ended up sort of dropping the Nashville thing, although I, I think it is, it, it is, I, re, I shouldn't say drop it. I ended up really de-emphasizing it. Sure. It is in there. Um, but I, I, one of the things that I liked about this book is that I had concepts of what I was going to do. I felt like the Allman Brothers Grateful Dead relationship was unexplored relatively for how important it was and how many people love both of those bands, including me. And there's, so much cross fertilization of the fan bases. Uh, I, don't, I don't really understand people who like one and not the other uh, to me, although I, I do know people like that. <laughs> um, so I wanted to explore that. This, this, this was at a, that relationship peaked during the brothers and sisters era, most obviously with Watkins Glen, but also just six weeks before Watkins Glen, they played two shows at RFK stadium in Washington that drew 83,000 people, which I think makes the Watkins Glen thing even more, yeah, <laughs> remarkable. And, and and the Grateful Dead have just when this is, goes live, this the Grateful Dead have just released audio of their portions of those shows, yeah. um, and as part of a box set called "Here Comes Sunshine" nineteen seventy three. Right, and they and they sound great. I mean, I, I think both bands, uh, you, you know, were really at at peaks. I wouldn't say the peak. I mean, with the Almond Brothers, you, you would probably have to call the peak the the. the you know, the Fillmore East era, the yeah. Dwayne Allman era, but it was a different band. And I think it's one of the things I wanted to call attention to in terms of them was because of the power of Dwayne and how great he was and the power of Fillmore East, uh, I, I feel like this era ended up being a little bit overlooked and disrespected even by most of the most hardcore fans, which is interesting and kind of weird because it also was by far their most popular era. I mean, uh, Brothers and Sisters is their best-selling album. By a long shot, uh, Ramblin' Man was their only hit single. Yeah. Totally an anomaly what it sounded like. And so some fans maybe were a little uncomfortable with it. Um, and, and The Grateful Dead, I don't think people look to 73 as a super peak era off the top of their heads. But they were really sound. These shows sound great. I've spent quite a bit of time listening to them. Uh, they, they were really good. So the bands were in great shape. Um, they were in a unique period for each of them that didn't sound quite like anything that came before or after. Um, they were playing really well and they had this real kinship. And I think what resonates about it even more is that Watkins Glen 
which seemed like the culmination of their relationship to that point and the start of something beautiful turned out to be the culmination of their relationship, period. They never played another bill together. That's and I, you know, that's skipping. I I had a list of questions. Yeah. That's the last one, but we're here, yeah. so let's not pass up. Why do you think that is? That yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. Well, there is no simple answer, and I and I talked about this a lot with everybody who would know, but uh, I'll sum it all up with my own conclusion. Okay. It was just simply the 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 way things fell. Uh, and, and the most key thing, remember, uh, 1974, the Grateful Dead take a hiatus. Sure. So they don't perform really essentially for the next two years. By the time they start performing again, the Allman Brothers are breaking up and, and then are broken up. That's a great point. Once the Allman Brothers reunite and then uh, after, which is just a couple of years later. So by, say, 1979, both bands are performing again. They're both that relatively diminished levels of uh, fan yeah. wise. I mean, the, I saw both of the bands for the first time, of course, not together uh, in 1979 and 80 in my hometown of Pittsburgh. Um, the Civic Arena, which was the basketball arena there, you know, the, when they had shows that were too big for the Stanley Theater, but couldn't really sell out the Civic Arena, they put the stage in the middle of the Civic Arena floor and put a curtain across it and essentially turned the 16,000 seat theater into an 8,000. I'm sorry, the 16,000-seat arena into an 8,000-seat arena. Well, I saw the Almond Brothers and the Grateful Dead, each of them in that capacity. Wow. And I, I just mentioned that to, to, you know, in this era where, you know, people are crawling over each other's head to get tickets for Dead & Company. That's where they were then. So they didn't have that same power. Sam Cutler was gone from the Grateful Dead. Uh, Bunky Odom, who was sort of the day-to-day manager of the Almond Brothers, was gone. He didn't come back when they reunited. And, and nobody would ever think about this, uh, unless you read my book, <laughs> but Sam Cutler and Bunky Odom, not, not the guys that people think about when they think about the Grateful Dead and the Almond Brothers, they were the key guys who had the relationship to get it done. They got along really well. They understood each other. Uh, Bunky is a real character. Both Bunky and Sam, uh, thankfully, are still very much with us. I interviewed both of them for the book. Major characters uh, in very different ways. Sam Cutler, as I'm sure a lot of People listening know is British who came to the Grateful Dead via the Rolling Stones at Altamont, stuck around. He was the only guy from the Rolling Stones who who stuck around to sort of face the music because he thought it was the stand-up thing to do. Garcia was impressed with that, brought him on. He ended up becoming the 
the co-manager of the dead. He now lives deep in the outback of Australia. <laughs> um, we, I interviewed him by Zoom. Bunky is an old North Carolina uh, uh, promotions man. Great. They're both great storytellers. You know, uh, Sam has a heavy, I guess, Cockney accent. I'm not, I'm not really an expert in British accents. He has a, a heavy British accent. Uh, uh, Bunky has a pretty heavy Southern drawl, but they <laughs> just hit it off. They understood each other. They liked each other and they got things done. So, so there's that really simple fact that that's sort of boring relatively to you know, talking about Greg Allman and Dickie Betts and Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh and, and stuff, which is more romantic. But that's really the fact. As you just heard, Sam Cutler and Bunky Odom played key roles in making the Summer Jam happen. Alan referenced both men still being with us, which was true a month ago when the chat was recorded. Sadly, Sam Cutler has since passed away. Yes, unfortunately, Sam Cutler died from cancer at age 80 on Tuesday, July 11th at his home in Australia. Without Sam's involvement, Watson's Glen likely would not have happened. Rest easy, Sam. You deserve it. Now back to Scotty's interview with Alan. And then uh, in 1976, preceding the Allman Brothers breakup and in some ways precipitating it, Greg Allman testified in a drug trial for uh, their road manager and sort of his security guy, Scooter Herring. Um, he was really squeezed by federal prosecutors. He felt that he had no choice. His story always, and I, I believe it to be true because I talked to a lot of people, is that Scooter told him to just go ahead. He was going to take the fall, um, which really didn't have that much to do with the Allman brothers. Scooter was also, you know, dealing drugs to Greg, and he was a connection uh, uh, to, to a guy named J.C. Hawkins, who ran the Dixie Mafia in and around Macon, Georgia, and uh, had done things like blow the face uh, off of guy, uh, a former associate of his who was going to testify against him, had his face blown up with a shotgun. So Scooter made that decision. Eventually, everyone in the Allman Brothers, most of the fan base, forgave Greg for that. The initial feel was that Greg was a rat. Uh, everyone turned on him. Rolling Stone magazine said that he may never perform again, which is pretty wild if you think about what, what was to come that that was said in 1976. But uh, Jerry Garcia and some members of the Grateful Dead crew never forgave Greg. And Interesting. Jerry may or may not have called him a rat on stage. I've never heard a recording of it. I actually don't believe that happened. But Greg thought it happened. That word got to Greg. And so Greg had, uh, you know, sort of uh, he, he, he turned on, on Jerry and the dead. And in later years, he said negative things about them. And people bring that up to me all the time. Oh, Greg didn't like the dead. Uh, it's really not true. He just was really hurt by that. Um, and geez, you know, if they could have ever gotten in a room together, 
somewhere along the way, they probably could have had a conversation and straightened that out, but that never happened. And and they never were quite on the same footing again. You know, by the 89, when the Allman Brothers reformed, the, the dead, of course, was starting to get to this level of being stadium bands, and it just never lined up again. It's, it, it, it's interesting. And I certainly, um, I'm, I'm 46 and came into the Almonds during that uh, 19, er, early 90s when uh, Warren and uh, Alan Woody were key members of the band and had heard from some of the older fans about, of older deadheads, about why they didn't like the Allman Brothers and that they thought Greg was a rat. And this was the most um, in-depth I've read about what actually happened. And I think it's an important part of, of the, this book and, and a, 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 a key component of, of what you, you covered this yeah. time around. Thank you. Yeah, I, I delved really deeply into the trial. Um, I tried to keep it moving. I mean, it's not that many pages, but I ingested the court cases. I interviewed lawyers. I did as much as I could because I felt like I really had to understand it. Um, and I listened extensively. I, I, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but I thought also at the heart of the book are some interviews that Kirk West did, uh, the, great, the tour mystic of the Allman Brothers. I know a lot of people know who he is, but uh, one of my best friends and, and, and the key for me, people always ask how I became an Allman Brothers insider. It was really ultimately through my relationship with Kirk. So he's been there with me, um, you know, through thick and thin. Um, he had, while the, while the band was broken up in the mid 80s, he was writing a book on the band. He was sort of a super fan. And he spent uh, several years and a lot of time and money going all around the country and interviewing everyone. Um, you know, Greg, Dickey. Jamo, Butch, Chuck Lavelle, um, Lamar Williams, unfortunately, had already passed away, so no interviews with him. But also Phil Walden, Bill Graham, uh, Bunky Odom, as, as mentioned, uh, a lot of people. Um, and Phil Walden, for those unfamiliar, is another key component of this book. He was the manager yeah. of, of the yeah, audience Yeah, Phil's a fascinating character. Uh, thank you for, for mentioning that. I was thrilled to be able to go into him a little bit more, too, because – Without him, there would have been no Allman Brothers band. And yet he also was such a conflicted, so, so full of conflicts of interest. He was, as you said, their manager. He also owned the record company, Capricorn Records, which is right there, a major conflict, not totally yes. unusual in the early days of rock and roll. But, um, you know, the main job of a manager is essentially to negotiate deals with other people, namely the record company. Uh, so he was essentially negotiating with himself. He also owned their publishing company which generates a lot of income through, through songwriting. Um, he owned or was a part owner of Paragon, which was the booking agent. He had a, uh, a, a stake in the ownership of the travel agent, the liquor store where he they had, bought their liquor, and everywhere. the merch company. Uh, fascinating character, but... Um, um, I lost my train of thought. No, we were talking about Kurt West. Then. Yes, I'm sure. Thank you. So Kurt had those interviews. And in his interviews with, with Greg, it was an interesting period especially for Greg, but really for all of them, they were broken up. It was uh, 1986 and 87 primarily. Um, they didn't really at that moment have any plans to get back together, although they, they would in just a couple of years in 1989. And they were quite honest and reflective, and it wasn't too far past the events. You know, it was 10 years after the first breakup, 13 years after Watkins Glen and Brothers and Sisters, and it was pretty fresh. And Greg spoke extensively about the trial, 
uh, in a way that he really didn't in later years. Um, I did speak to him about it in my interviews with Greg, but um, relatively um, surfacey okay. the way he talked about it compared to the way he was talking about it then. He was more open. Uh, so that was invaluable. Kirk's interviews were invaluable in a lot of ways. That may have been one of the very most invaluable ways because um, there was really no other period, even in his own book, I don't feel that Greg addressed um, that issue. And, and right. also his marriage to share, uh, he spoke extensively to Kirk about two subjects that in later years he was a bit touchy about. Sure. You could ask him about it, but he wouldn't go very deep. He, he would he would answer, but again, you know, with sort of prepared answers, not really thoughtful, searching answers the way he was with Kirk in, in 86 and 87. So uh, extremely grateful for those interviews. Um, incredibly meaningful to me uh, that Kirk entrusted them to me and. Um, it was a lot of work to digitize them and listen to them hundreds and hundreds of hours, um, but mostly fun work and incredibly sure. rewarding because it, it's, it gives the book, I think, just a, a depth that it, it couldn't have any other way. When the moon hits the southwest horizon With the scream of an eagle And Kirk, when the almonds reunited, one of the reasons he didn't write the book was because the almonds reunited. They recruited him, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. So Kirk went out when the Almond Brothers reunited in 1989. Kirk, by trade, I should say, is a photographer and a great photographer. Uh, you can go to KirkWestPhoto.com, I think it is, photography.com. His photos are fantastic of the Almond Brothers, but also of, um, you know, most of the rock and blues greats of, of you know, the 70s, I guess I would say, from the police to Johnny Paycheck to the Bee Gees and Buddy Guy, B.B. King, Albert King, but, you know, all those guys. So Kirk first went out on the road in 89 as a tour photographer. And they quickly realized they liked talking to him and they didn't like talking to the road manager that had been hired by uh, Danny Goldberg, who was the then manager. Uh, and so they just started talking to Kirk and telling him to talk to the other guy. And then eventually they fired the other guy and they Made Kirk, I think, first the assistant tour manager and then the tour manager. And I think Kirk's first reaction was, hey, wait, I'm a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, well, we like talking to you. We don't like talking to him. So uh, he became their tour manager. And then eventually, uh, over the period of a couple of years, a really essential figure to the band and the connection to the fans, which is why I think a, a lot of the more hardcore Allman Brothers fans or longer term Allman Brothers fan listening will know who Kirk is because he was the link and the liaison between the band and the fans. Sure. All right. Now that Scotty and Alan discussed the background of Alan's brothers and sisters book, it's time for the deep dive into the summer jam at Watkins Glen and how it came together. Check out a taste of the band keyboardist Garth Hudson's genetic method solo from Watkins Glen, which he titled too wet to work. (laughs) 
Well, that brings us to the summer jam at, at Watkins Glen. And um, can you tell me about the, the two promoters that really kind of uh, first uh, brought up this idea? Yeah, so it was Jim Koplick and Shelley Finkel, uh, who then were partners working together. Um, both of them have had interesting careers since they were quite young men, uh, both in their 20s. I think Shelley was 29 and Jim was 23 or 24. Um they promoted a show in Hartford. That was one of their places uh, in 1972. It was a Grateful Dead show. And the Allman Brothers were in New York. They had the day off. J-Mo, Barry Oakley, who was uh, still with us, and uh, Dickie Betts took a limo up from New York to Hartford, and they sat in. And uh, it was interesting. That was during the period when the Grateful Dead only had one drummer. Mickey was not with them. Right. And I always wondered... How did, uh, whose jump drums did J-Mo play? Yeah. <laughs> so I asked J-Mo and he looked at me like I was an idiot. He said, I played my drums, um, which answered an important question. I wasn't really sure until J-Mo told me that if, if they were just there hanging out and then they said, hey, you want to jam or that's not what happened. They went up there with, with the intention of okay. sitting in. They had their instruments. Um, and, and Dickie Betts and uh, uh, Jerry Garcia had a real affinity for one another. They had very similar approaches, which is interesting. Um, you know, Dickie told me years ago in an interview that he had the idea. Dickie grew up before he ever had an electric guitar playing what he calls string music, it was essentially bluegrass music. Uh, he had a lot of fiddler and uh, ukulele mandolin players in his family. He played mandolin, ukulele. I, I'm sorry, not mandolin. He played ukulele and fiddle before he ever played guitar. Um, and so when he started playing then electric rock guitar and blues guitar, he would incorporate some of the scales and approaches of bluegrass music, although again, he called it string music, um, into the electric playing. Well, Garcia did something really similar. He also had a bluegrass background. Um, and so, of course, they're in very different parts of the country and the world and coming to things a little bit differently, but from that same background. And Dickie told me, I always had this concept of what I wanted to do and the first time I heard a recording of the Grateful Dead, without even knowing who they were, I thought, oh, that guy beat me to it. <laughs> uh, Jerry was doing that concept that, that Dickie had because, you know, the, the Dead were putting out records years before the Allman Brothers were. Sure. So, in fact, uh, Dickie told me that he liked Jerry so much, was so attracted to the music, he quit listening to the Grateful Dead because he didn't want to be influenced by it. He didn't like the idea of being influenced by his peers. He wanted to be influenced by you know, Robert Johnson and B.B. King uh, and Django Reinhardt, not by Jerry Garcia. Uh, but and he loved him so much that he felt that if he listened to it, he would be. But you can hear and, uh, the, you know, like most Grateful Dead shows that Hartford show is readily available uh, to find. You can find it online and listen to it. And you can hear that uh, Jerry and Dickie have a, a joy in playing with one another. They're really getting off on it and they push each other in, in cool ways. And it's a bit different for the dead, you know, uh, I have great respect for Bob Weir and, and he was perfect, of course, for what Jerry was doing, but he's not a lead guitar player in that way. And I think Jerry really enjoyed playing with Dickie. Um, the other thing that that's a bit more under the table is that Billy Kreutzmann and J-Mo loved playing with each other. Uh, J-Mo told me that in all his years playing, there's only three drummers he enjoyed playing with. Uh, one, of course, was Butch Trucks, his partner in the Allman Brothers for decades. And the other two were Buddy Miles and Bill Kreutzmann. Um, you know, he played with plenty of other drummers, but he said he never really enjoyed it in the same way because it felt like work. And playing with those guys, they just swung. Hi, this is Bill Kreutzmann from The Grateful Dead. 
And you know, I was thinking today, it's been 50 years since I played at Watkins Glen. Us and the Almond Brothers. And I got to meet a wonderful drummer and became a wonderful friend of Jamo's. We actually hung back in his dressing room for a while, picked up sticks and just started playing on anything that can make a sound. You know, and it was one of the most memorable moments. The gigs were good, but sitting in Jamo's dressing room, that was the most fun, hanging out with him. Um, Billy told me a similar thing. It's not about only enjoying playing with a couple of people, but how much he loves playing with J-Mo yeah. and al always has. Uh, so you can hear that. So then the next night, the Allman Brothers are playing at Gaelic Park. Bob Weir, Bill Kreutzman, and Jerry Garcia come down and play. So they sat in together two nights in a row. And that sparked the idea uh, among Sam Cutler and Bunky Odom, hey, we ought to do something. And among Jim Koplick and Shelley Finkel of, we ought to do something. They already were, the bands were already interested in doing it. They were planning shows together. They had some really cool shows planned uh, in the fall of 72 that were canceled because of Barry Oakley's death. They were going to play in Houston. Uh, they were going to play, I think, two shows in Houston, uh, which the dead went on and played without them uh, on their own. They were going to play in Athens, Georgia, uh, which ended up being altogether canceled. And then the Allman Brothers were going to open some December 1972. I think it was three shows at Winterland. Um, all of that was canceled um, because of Barry's death and the Almonds taking time off from, from touring. But it didn't, you know, cancel the idea of playing together. So they started working on other things that led to the uh, RFK show. At the same time, Coplick and Finkel were saying, you know, trying to do something big together. They wanted to play in Springfield, Massachusetts originally. A lot of areas, a lot of uh, towns were leery of having big gatherings after Woodstock. Nobody really wanted to deal with it. So Springfield, Mass vetoed it. Uh, Bill Graham was planning something for the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead together in Ontario, California. Um, that even that went as far as being announced as a show and then that got canceled by the local authorities out there. So was that before the, uh, the yeah, Woodwalkins? Uh, yes. I forget the exact date. We could look that up in a, in a moment. They, they, uh, uh, I, actually, yeah, yes, I think it was before. I believe it was supposed to be in May of 1973. Okay. But um, it was announced and then pretty quickly canceled because the authorities put a really tight curfew on. I think it was going to be three hours before sunset or something. And there was no way for to get the two bands in. Um, you can't get the Allman Brothers or the Grateful Dead, much less both of them, to, and tell them to play 90-minute sets. Like, that's not happening. Yeah. So... Um, you know, if you have those two bands, you're going to have a full day of music. Um, so Watkins Glen became the focus. And maybe some of that other stuff being canceled had to do with the, the buzz that was building up amongst kids. Um, one of the things about this writing about this that was the most interesting and fun for me was talking to many, many, many people who were there. Um, what I started to realize as I wrote it, I wrote sort of a first draft uh, of these, I originally thought it was going to be a chapter and became multiple chapters. Um, I had great stuff from members of the Allman Brothers. I had great stuff from members of the Grateful Dead. I had Sam Cutler, I had Monkey Odom. I had Red Dog. I had Bill Graham, who was not the promoter, as, as we said, Shelley uh, Finkel and Jim Coplick were. But at the Grateful Dead's suggestion, they brought in uh, Bill to run, build and manage the stage and run the backstage area, which turned out to be a, a great idea. So he was also involved as sort of a, a quasi promoter. Um, I had information from all of them. I had some great stuff from Robbie Robertson. Um, you know, I had the I had the bands really well covered, but I realized, gee, I don't have the voice of the fans here. And so I put up a post 
uh, I guess on my Facebook page, I, I said, hey, I'm going to write about Watkins Glen Summer Jam. Anyone who was there, please send me a note and I'd love to interview you. You know, I thought I'd get a handful of people and start sorting through them. And I got flooded with responses. It was it was unbelievable. So I realized, well, I don't have time to interview everyone. What am I going to do here? So I, I sent everyone a, a sort of form message and said, um, please just tell me about your experience in a, in a few sentences. And, I'll, and, and then I pick people who made the either were most interesting and different from one another because I didn't want, you know, 20 of the same similar stories um, and, and did interviews with them. And it, it was fascinating. And, and one of the things that struck me uh, and has continued to because I keep meeting people and I'm sure once this comes out, I'm going to meet more and more and more people in the, in the coming weeks and days as I go around and, and talk about the book. So many people were 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, which means now they're 54, 55, 50, or I'm sorry, 64, 65, 66. Uh, it was 50 years ago. And it's quite amazing to me. And I, I uh, and even having grown up in that era, I mean, like I was talking about going to those Grateful Dead and Alma Brothers shows at the Civic Arena. I was about 13 and 14 when I did that. And somehow my parents let me do that. Uh, it was fairly nutty. But that wasn't going for two days, yeah. <laughs> you know, hundreds of miles away to this huge thing with 600,000 people. Um, but the people's stories are wild. Uh, one of the people I interviewed who was there is my good friend, Andy Allidort, who is my co-author of Texas Flood, uh, and also my partner in the band, Friends of the Brothers. We played the Almond Brothers music. Um, but Andy was there and, 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 you know, he had an interesting point that, that I, he made to me and that I, I tried out on everyone. And I really came to realize that he was quite right. What happened was, there were so many kids who were not old enough to go to Woodstock, which remember it was just four years earlier, 1969, okay. but they were old enough to be aware of it. Maybe they were like 11, 10, 11, 12, and their older siblings went and their cousins went and their neighbors went. They were very aware of it. And their attitude was simply, if something like that happens again, I'm there. And they didn't want to miss it. And they felt like it was a second Woodstock. It was not how it was advertised. There's a lot of differences to Woodstock. There were three bands, not uh, multiple. It was really, it was only supposed to be one day of music. As you mentioned, today's the 50th anniversary of the sound check. It, it became two days of music, but it really was a one day festival with three bands. That's what it was. Um, wasn't supposed to be Woodstock, yeah. but it sort of became that. And, and part of it was because of this insistence of, People like I missed Woodstock. I'm not missing this, and so people flooded here from all over, uh, particularly the Northeast. But certainly, I mean, I interviewed people who drove up from North Carolina and Georgia and Texas and Chicago. I mean, it was by no means just the Northeast. And uh, you talked about the, the demographics. Uh, Thirty percent of those ages, seventeen and twenty-four, are living between Boston and New York, as well as one out of every three hundred and fifty <laughs> Americans yeah. were at Watkins. Yeah, uh, Bunky Odom was the one who first, I think, gave me those numbers, and I, I checked them out as best as I could, and they basically check out. Now, it's not literally that percentage of uh, youth in the Northeast, because as I said, there's of course people coming from everywhere, but. Yes, as a percentage of the population, that's what it was. And um, it's funny because as as I was writing the book and talking to friends about it and friends of friends and then preparing and getting ready to promote it and now it's coming out, um, 
so many people pop up and say, I was at Watkins Glen. I was at Watkins Glen. And your first reaction is, oh, they're lying. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, all these people claim they were at Fillmore East for the recording of, at Fillmore East or for the Dead Almond shows in 1970. And gee, there's only 3,000 people there or whatever. But then you contemplate Watkins Glen. There were 650,000 people there. So, um, yes, probably all the people telling me they were there, they really were there. <laughs> it, 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 it seems impossible by how many people I meet, uh, but it's really just a reflection of how massive the crowds were. And the band was brought in as the third band, but they weren't the first act that the producers signed. Right. So, so the band, they, they so uh, Jim Koblick and Shelley Finkel both told me they knew right away they needed a third act. Um, and and the, the idea very much was that the third act was going to be uh, the ancillary act. It was an Allman Brothers Grateful Dead show. But they needed a third band because that would take the heat off of the concept of who's opening and who's closing, um, which had not been decided until very late. And so they signed Leon Russell. Um, each of the bands and the signed contracts, the Allman Brothers and Grateful Dead, for $117,500. They both ended up making quite a bit more, which we, we can talk about. But um, they signed Leon Russell for seventy five thousand dollars. That was that was the deal. Thirty seven thousand five hundred payable on signature of the contract and the rest uh, at the performance. Very late in the show, in the uh, 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 planning, planning. Thank you. Very late in the planning for the festival. They had last meeting to nail everything down in San Francisco. Bunky Odom flew out there. He was seated at a table in the Grateful Dead uh, offices, I believe it was, with Rock Scully and Sam Cutler, who were the managers of the Grateful Dead, uh, Phil Lesh, Jerry Garcia, Bill Graham, uh, Jim Coplick and Shelley Finkel, uh, and Bunky. I believe I got everyone there. So Bunky was the lone guy from the Allman Brothers Band. Right before he left, uh, Phil Walden, the aforementioned manager of the Allman Brothers, who had a way of being very domineering and not always reasonable, said to Bunky, well, when you go out there, you make sure that we're the closing band. And Bunky said, I can't do that, Phil. You know, we haven't even broached that yet. We, I think we might do a coin flip. You know, they didn't really have a plan uh, of how, who was going to close. And everybody knew that was a potential issue. Um, and so Phil said, I don't care. We're the closing band or it's not happening. And Bunky was really upset. Now, he's been planning this thing for a year They've gotten so far down the road. Nobody's ever demanded that we have to close, neither he nor Sam Cutler nor anyone else. And so he he's completely flummoxed and upset. He tries to talk Phil out of it. But in, in Bunky's word, Phil sometimes just couldn't be talked out of things. So he goes out to the meeting. He's sitting there at the table with all those guys. And he's thinking, oh, hell, what am I going to do? My God, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? And they start talking. And first they say, um, uh, I think it was Garcia said, well, I want the band to be the third band. And uh, Coplick and Finkel said, OK, sure. They were absolutely certain it wasn't going to be a problem, a conflict with the Leon Russell because the band hadn't performed in 18 months. Right. So they thought, OK, we'll do a pro forma invite to the band. They'll say no, which because they've turned down everything for years. And um, and we'll just have Leon. And then we'll tell Jerry, don't hey, band said no, but we got Leon Russell. Um, and they also want him to ask Bob Dylan, who is now really it's a forgotten thing. But Bob Dylan at that point hadn't performed in seven years. He hadn't performed since 1966. Uh, actually, out of Besides everything, that blows my yeah. mind almost more than yeah. everything. Yeah. Um, 
hadn't toured. It hadn't, and so um, they did ask Dylan and he said no. They did ask the band and the band said yes, uh, much to their surprise and, and, and Garcia's delight. But um, they had to pay Leon Russell his deposit. So he made $37,500 for not, for not appearing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, apparently he was quite upset about it. Sure. Um, but but uh, he got a nice payday for not performing. And you think back at it now and you go, gee, they're going to have this. Turned out to be a two-day festival, 600,000 people there. They could have had Leon Russell and the band. Why not? Yeah. But anyhow, that wasn't uh, how it went. And the meeting's going on and Bunky is still thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do about this opening? And before it could even come up, Garcia said, well, our guys are building the sound system, so we should play first so we can test it out play it for four hours um and bunky, bunky was so thrilled relieved. thrilled just so relieved because aside from being uh I, I i think something to realize about bunky is he wouldn't have been scared bunky bunky is a you know obviously had uh, brass balls i mean just to be sitting there but i mean he was devastated with the concept that this whole thing could blow up at the very last minute after years of work and and companionship and really friendship and a good working relationship with Sam. It felt he felt like he was being asked to do something that was a betrayal of the spirit of the whole thing, but was left with no choice. And then it was diffused by Jerry. Um, of course, we can't ask Jerry why he did that. Uh, <laughs> Sam Cutler's belief was that Jerry would have instinctively uh, understood this is going to be a problem area. Who cares? It's going to be a great festival. Let's just, I'll just take this off the table as an issue and just, we'll do it. Not um, to mention it's uh, wound up being a better slot. Absolutely. And that was, uh, since you say that, that that's the other thing that uh, Bunky tried to raise with Phil was, um, do you really want to play last? It's going to get dark. People are going to be tired. Uh, I think earlier is better. And, and in a weird way, the band who was really, the third band and, and should have been the opening band essentially was signed as the opening band had sort of time-wise the best slot. You know, it wasn't too early and not too late, um, but they didn't really have the best slot because they got rained on. So they, they were the only one of the three bands who were interrupted by rain. And you mentioned Bunky and how at the last minute this, he was scared this whole thing was going to blow up, but even closer to the absolute last minute came another instance where Bunky was tasked by Phil right. with uh, uh, on the precipice of this concert not happening. Can you talk about right. that? So what happened was, as mentioned, the Grateful Dead played first. And as they're getting ready to go on, uh, Sam Cutler, getting more and more irritated by how big the crowd is, um, we'll, we'll double back to the to the sound check, but you know they had essentially now performed two days instead of one. Um, he's thinking this is ridiculous. I'm demanding. I want more money. So he goes up to uh, Coplick and he says, "This crowd is three times bigger than what we had talked about because that was the, the tickets were supposed to be capped at around two hundred thousand. Got way more people here. Uh, we need more money." And Coplick says. Well, look, you know, we, we ended up, we had to open the doors for free because of this rush of people. So these extra people didn't pay money. Uh, we, we can't pay you for people who came for free. And, and, and uh, you know, Cutler says, look, it's not my problem. You, you figure that out. Uh, I, I can't tell my guys we're not getting more money when the crowd is three to four times bigger than we had talked about. I need $20,000 cash or they're not taking the stage. So 
they really had no choice. So they, they ran back to their production studio. They had a, a, a trailer, sorry. They had a, a safe in there and they start taking out money and counting it. And they had $20,000. So they bundle it up and put it in a manila envelope and bring it to Sam. And they literally hand him a envelope of $20,000 cash. Uh, and, and the Grateful Dead take the stage. So they're performing. And during their performance, Phil Walden arrives by helicopter. Everybody is now coming and going by helicopter because the roads are completely closed. Uh, People had abandoned their cars. This, by the way, happened in Pittsburgh for the Dead & Company show last month. My sister was caught in that. That's a whole other story. But these things still happen. Um, So Phil arrives by helicopter. All of the guys describe that the most awesome sight of the crowd was from the helicopters coming in. Uh, Chuck Lavelle and Butch Trucks, so they, they asked the helicopter pilot to circle around. Uh, Phil Lesh talks about this. I mean, obviously from the stage, uh, you have a sense of this huge crowd, but from the air, you really see the crowd. I mean, it's going for acres, for miles. It's spilling out way beyond the stage area. So Phil lands. He has seen that crowd just now, and he says, what the hell is going on here? There is, you know, a million people. Uh, eventually the count was 600 to 650,000 estimated, but to Phil, it looked like a million, which is not unreasonable. I'm sure it did. And he says, well, we've got to get a lot more money or, or we're not playing. And, uh, you know, get ready to he says, pull, pull the band. But if we don't, if they don't, if they don't guarantee more money, pull the band, we're leaving. So Bunky says, we can, we can work this out, Phil. So he goes to Koplik and Finkel. A Bunky really was the hero of this whole thing. And, and, and Koplik said that they also put Bunky in charge of the helicopters because he was the most reliable. As, as, as Jim Koplik said to me in the book, uh, Bunky was a sane person in a land of crazy people. Okay. Said Sam Cutler was crazy. Phil Walden was crazy. Bill Graham was crazy. And Bunky was not. So he was the only guy that we could sort of talk reason with. So Bunky goes to them. First, he goes to uh, Twigs Linden and Red Dog, who were basically ran the Allman Brothers crew. And he says, we're not going to leave. We're not going to pull out, but we might have to pretend we're going to pull out. So be ready to start packing up gear and putting it on the truck. It's not a red alert. It's a, I don't know. Yellow. Yellow alert. Yeah. He didn't use that word to me, but that's basically what he told them. So um, he goes to Koplik and he says, look, Phil's losing it. This crowd is way bigger than expected. We're going to need some more money. And so they sit down and work out a deal. Um, and they ended up getting more money. They ended up getting well over $200,000 total. So they made way more than the, uh, Grateful Dead. Um, and Bunky always felt bad about that. In fact, because from the very beginning of the conversation and the negotiations, it was, agreed that it was what's called most favored nations where they would make equal money. Um, And that was important. That goes to the same idea of who was going to open and close that they were co-headliners. Truly, uh, there was not an opening band, even though Grateful Dead played first, but they were not the opening band. They were just the band that played first. Uh, Anyone who goes to concerts understands the distinction of that. Um, And and what was fascinating to me is that both Sam Cutler and Bunky um, neither of them knew until I interviewed them and told each of them that the other had made more money. And when I told uh, Sam, you know, I thought maybe after all these years, he'd be mad that the Allman Brothers had made more. And he said, oh, good on him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, his attitude was, 
why should the greedy promoters make all this money from this huge crowds when the musicians are up there doing the work? And that's what Bunky was doing, and that's what I was doing. And Bunky did not know about the Grateful Dead getting the $20,000 in cash. And he said, oh, well, I'm really glad to hear that. I've been feeling guilty about this for 50 years, that I kind of betrayed Sam and our trust uh, of equality. And it still wasn't equal, but they both were doing their own thing and worked out separate deals. Do you think the promoter still made a, a, a fair amount of money off of Watkins Glen? Yes, I know they made a fair amount of money because I asked them and okay. they told me, and they would be happy to cry poor if it had ended sure. up costing them money. Um, they didn't make the massive killing that they hoped to and that they may have uh, if they had been able to record it and release. You know, Woodstock was a money losing venture and made its money back from the film and the soundtrack. And that was sort of their plan, but. Um, the Grateful Dead was insistent from the beginning that it not be recorded. They didn't allow it to be videoed at all. Um, well, it would have been filmed, sorry, not video at the time, sure. but um, it wasn't filmed. Um, I, I respect Sam Cutler and the Grateful Dead for taking that stand, although I also resent them for it because I wish we had the footage. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, not, not just uh, film footage, but it was a remarkably under-photographed event. If you if you can start conceiving, I mean, look at when Dead and Company plays now and, you know, the next day or that night, you can see 50 awesome photos from Jay Blakesburg. Yeah. You know, Danny Clinch pops up and is videoing from the stage and, you know, each city has its own photographers. Uh, and, and that's great. Everybody knows what it looked like and what it sounds like. Um, Watkins Glen has this incredible event and there's really very few photos. Uh, Joe Sia, great New York photographer, was up there. He seemed to mostly shoot backstage. Um, there's not a lot of photos. I, I got some tremendous photos in the book. I'm really happy about um, John Linsky from the Big House Museum had some uh, photos of the Allman Brothers that had never been printed before. I don't believe I got those, um, which was great. And there was a guy named Randy Hauser who was there just as a fan, but he was a photo editor at Middlebury College. So he was more than just like a guy with an Instamatic. He was a not a professional photographer. He was a college student, but he was a photography student and he had a real camera and some real skills. Um, so I have some wonderful photos from him, uh, Bill Graham on the stage of Owsley, um, really kind of a rare photo of him on this little motorbike that he uh, rode around with. A nice photo of Garcia on stage where you can see the wild sound system that was sort of the precursor of the wall of sound. And then Several pages of photos of the crowd. I really emphasize that because that was the story yeah. to me, really. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited about this whole thing, and I love these photos. And they're 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 so cool to view, and just one of many reasons to to get the book. Scotty, we've mentioned today is the 50th anniversary of Watkins Glen starting, but it wasn't actually supposed to take place on this date in 1973. That's right, AK. With so many fans flooding the site and ready for action one day before the concert was planned to go off, all three bands played sets on July 27, 1973. It's been dubbed the sound check, but it was really like a second day of concerts. Yeah, we love bonus music. It's like the all-time best filler ever. <laughs> as I'm sure the people who traveled from far and wide to Watkins did as well. Okay, listen to a bit of the Grateful Dead's outrageous free-form jam from the soundcheck, and then we'll get to the end of my chat with Alan Paul. Mm-hmm. 
Well, again, this is the 50th anniversary of not the walk the summer jam at Watkins Glen, but the sound check. Can you talk a little bit about how this impromptu concert came together that turned what was supposed to be a one day event into a two day event? Yeah, so it, it was a confluence of of events, but if you had to sum it up in two words, it would be Bill Graham. It was his idea. Again, he wasn't the promoter, but he was there running the stage in the backstage and was obviously involved and uh, had the respect of everyone involved. Uh, obviously, the Almond Brothers, the Grateful Dead, had great love and respect for Bill from working at the Fillmore East and West and Winterland. And the promoters respected him, of course, as one of their great promoters. Um, so as the crowds are streaming in, streaming in, we're starting to have a situation. So uh, two nights before the concert, late in 27th, early into the 28th, uh, they're, they're having a bit of a crisis. What are we going to do? People are streaming in. Um, they're worried about they're start worried about having a security situation. They're worried that the gates aren't going to hold, which would mean the fence gets pushed down, which could lead to you know, injuries and a stampede and a bad situation. And so Bill Graham says, you need to stop selling tickets. They still had a ticket window open. You need to stop selling tickets. You need to open the gates and take the fences down and be in control of it. And they initially said, no, 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 we, we can't, we, you know, we have a lot of money we need to get, we need to get our money. And he said, look, you've made your money. You, you going to lose a lot more than money if, yeah. if this gets out of control and it's in danger of getting out of control. So he, he won and they opened the gates. So it became a free concert, uh, which was clearly the right thing to do. And, and it was good that they had the foresight pushed by Bill uh, to do it probably not long before it would have been forced to be done in a, in an unpleasant way. Yeah. So the next step in that whole thing is now there's maybe not 600,000 people there yet, but hundreds of thousands, 200 to 300,000 people are on the grounds the day before and people are coming in. Meanwhile, the bands never sound checked at all. Literally just uh, a true sound check. I'm talking about testing the sound system, which was an incredible feat. The, the development of the sound system by the grateful deads, uh, quote unquote, coven of high hi-fi wizards. I mean, they built an incredible sound system that played a huge role in the fact that it stayed safe. They had three rows of speakers. Uh, they went 300 feet wide. The stage was about 60 feet wide. Um, so the people essentially um, would be 120 feet on either side of the stage, approximately could hear the music. So they didn't push into the middle, which would have been a fiasco. And they put in a delay so that um, it didn't echo. So people were hearing pure sound all the way back. But they had to test that out. So they had to have a sound check. Everything had been delayed by rain, by the complexity of building that sound system. And so the day comes, the day before comes, they haven't sound checked. They don't even know for sure how this system is working. And there's two to 300,000 people there and, you know, thousands more by the minute. And so... Bill Graham says, everybody's saying, well, what are we going to do? He never sound checked. And Bill says, well, why don't you go out and, and, and sound check and play as long as you want? And he said that first to the Grateful Dead because he knew the dead really well. And he knew that, in Bill's words, in an interview with Kirk, they're not going to go out there and say, give me an A. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the dead go out and they said, well, they said, just go out and play, you know, and, and go, go play a song or two. You know, that was the concept. Well, they went out and played a full set. Um, I believe it was a four-hour set. Somebody could – we'd have to – we should check that. Uh, 
they played a multi-hour set and it was fantastic. They all felt great about it. And of course, like most dead shows, we can listen to it and we can confirm that it was fantastic. It was a great show. Um, and so the Allman Brothers then had to do their sound check. Well, they're not going to go out and play one song after the dead just played four hours. So they played a full set. And so um, it became a, a two day festival. So people got two sets and in typical keeping of the band's uh, approaches, the Grateful Dead played two really different shows and the mm -hmm. Allman Brothers played more similar sets. Um, I would say on the actual festival day, the Allman Brothers probably outperformed the dead. Um, they, the dead didn't play a great set as Jerry always liked to say, you know, they didn't ever play their best at the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, Woodstock, Monterey pop. Super Bowl <laughs> isn't always the yeah, best yeah. game of the year. But having said that, yeah, Garcia and then other guys in the dead would always talk about how bad they were at Watkins Glen. Again, you can listen to the show. They weren't, it was not a bad set. It's just not a great set. And, and the day before is, I think, inarguably and, and to pretty much everyone's opinion, better and, and great. I mean, it's, it's a prime Grateful Dead <laughs> set of music. And let's end the way that Watkins Glen ended. What um, is your take on the short set that collaborative set between the three, three yeah. acts. Well, it's better than people said it was. That's my short take on it. Um, Butch Trucks was the most vociferous for years in, in interviews to me and to many other people. He would talk about how bad it was. You know, Butch always said we were all like out of our minds, messed up on different drugs. You know, we were on cocaine and moving really fast and the dead was all sloppy drunk and and, and the, uh, I'm sorry, the band was all sloppy drunk and the dead was uh, tripping and they were all, you know, out, out in space and we couldn't get it on the same page. Um, but if you listen to the set, which wasn't that brief, I mean, they, they played a, really a set. Um, and by the way, the, the, the Grateful Dead, remember, they've been off the stage now for hours right. and they could have left. They were not contractually obligated to stick around. Um, and the same with the band had been off stage a little less, but they also were not contractually obligated to stick around. And they did. And the highlight of that set, I think, without a doubt, is Mountain Jam, uh, which was released on the Almond Brothers Trouble No More uh, 50th anniversary box set a few years ago. So you can you can look that up and, and everybody can hear for themselves. But um, it's a mountain jam with with uh, Garcia and Robbie Robertson and, and Dickie Betts going off with each other and. Uh, Jerry sounds great and Dickie sounds great. And um, it may not be the, the, the greatest collaboration those guys ever had, but it, it's very good. And the rest of it is fine, if a little bit perfunctory. Sure, absolutely. Alan Paul, Brothers and Sisters, the Allman Brothers Band and the inside story of the album that defined the 70s. It's out now on St. Martin's Press. I can't recommend it enough. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, today. you're welcome, Scott. It's a pleasure. It's, it's uh, Thanks for having me. And it's fun to just talk about music with another person who loves it like yeah. I do. And uh, especially to your audience. I know people listening feel the same way we do. And those are our people, so uh, thank you for letting me talk to them. You got it.
that's it for this episode of the Jambase podcast. Thanks so much to Alan Paul for taking the time to chat with me. His book, Brothers and Sisters, is on sale now. I highly recommend grabbing it. Uh, Lots of recordings are available of all three bands at Watkins Glen. Check out Relisten. Some of them are official. Well worth the spin. Highly recommended. Thanks to Jake Alexander for producing this episode. If you like what you heard and you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Please subscribe to the Jambase podcast. Come back next week for a new episode. Take care and go see live music.